Brothers and sisters, uh, super good to be with you this morning. Let me invite you to go ahead and grab your Bibles, if you haven't already, and find your place in 2 Peter chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're drawing this letter of 2 Peter to a close, just a couple more weeks here together. And this morning, I want to uh, just see how well you remembered. We, we learned something last week that, uh, if, I just want to do it this way, if you are ready to study God's Word, I want you to say, Maranatha. Maranatha. All right, it was all right. I think we did a little better, all right? If you're ready to study God's Word together, say, Maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. You don't have to say that. You can stop. Thanks. We learned that the early church had a greeting among one another. When they would greet one another, they would say to one another, Maranatha. They lived in this daily expectation that today could be the day. Come, Lord Jesus. The Apostle Peter here in 2 Peter chapter 3 is reminding these believers then and us today of the reality of the promised coming, the return, the new heaven, the new earth, all that's encompassed in that, that the day of the Lord will come. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, before we jump into this text, I just want to kind of set the context again. I, you guys know this, and maybe I talk about it too much. I don't know, but I'm a big football fan. I love football. I, I like to watch football. I, I used to like to play football. I'm an old guy now. I guess it's kind of ugly, me playing football now. But I, I love to watch football. I love college football. I love NFL football. You guys know I have favorite teams, Dallas Cowboys. You know that by now. And I love watching the Cowboys. Our family gets to watch the Cowboys on TV together. That's a great joy for us. My favorite way to watch a Dallas Cowboys game, I'll confess, watch this, is on DVR. My favorite way is to watch the game and I already know that the Cowboys have won. That's a great way to watch a game. Because no matter what happens... No matter what happens in the game, the highs and the lows and the turnovers and the penalties and the other team gets up by 30, you're cool and you're not worried because you know how the game's going to end. Now the point of that is for you and me as children of God, as we walk through this present age that we live in, our perspective, our lives should be marked by a different kind of life. Watch this. Because we know how the game ends. We know. We know there is great confidence and stability and strength and energy that comes to the life of a believer because we know that our King is going to return. We know practically on the other side there's great uncertainty and anxiety and instability in our lives when you're uncertain of the future, right? When there are situations and things in your life and you just don't know how it's going to turn out and you have uncertain future and you don't know what next week brings and there's this heaviness over you. Man, you're anxious and you're fearful and you're unstable. Confidence about the future transforms the way we live our lives in the present. Do you hear that? 
confident assurance of our future transforms the way we live our lives today in the present. Came across an interesting statistic this week. Over the past five years in America, Americans have spent over $2.2 billion into the psychic industry. That was shocking to me. $2.2 billion have been spent going to psychics, palm readers, tarot cards, whatever other in that gamut of in that industry. Why? Because there's something in us we need, we long to know the future. When we understand the certainty of our future as the children of God, man, we could say, come Lord Jesus. And there's a categoric difference about our life today. Because we have absolute certainty about the future. The Apostle Peter, with great urgency, great concern, great love in this letter is writing. He's giving a reminder to these disciples then. He's stirring up these elect exiles, as we've been seeing this together, of their and our glorious certain future. Our big truth for the past few weeks is the same as today. The day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. There will be a day in the future when the wicked, those outside of Christ, will face the justice of God. And all sin, once and for all, will be dealt with perfectly and righteously. Come Lord Jesus. There is a day when every born-again believer will finally be made like Him because we will see Him as He really is. Come Lord Jesus. And there is a day when all things will be made new. Come Lord Jesus. So 2 Peter chapter 3, just going to read a few verses as review and then we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning in verses 11 through 13. But let me just give you a little review. Here's what Peter is saying in this context. Verse 1 says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. Beloved, he says in both of them, my purpose has been the same. He says, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. Now remember, Peter here is thinking like a disciple maker. We are to continually think as disciples. Yes, how can I grow? And as disciple makers, how can I help others grow? How can we build one another's up, other up? He's observed something here in the lives of these believers. He said, you have forgotten the promise. Your lives are not living consistent with this promise. And he says, I want to remind you, I want to restore something to you in our language of disciple making. I want to restore something. I want to bring you back to the promise of God. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions or the promises of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior himself through your apostles. That's kind of like Peter saying the, the truths of the Old Testament and the truths of the New Testament. The scripture, the word of God. He says, knowing this first of all, verse 3, these scoffers, they're going to come. Don't you be surprised when scoffers come and they mock or, or they 
trash what we treasure. They're going to come. They're going to mock this truth, this, this hope that you're holding on to, this certain hope that the, the Lord Jesus is going to return. They're just going to belittle. They're going to mock. They're going to make fun. They're going to deny the reality. And they're going to say, where's the promise of his coming? Peter comes back, verse 8, skip down a little bit for sake of time. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as one day. And they don't take that too far. The idea is God is eternal. God's measurement of time is not like our measurement of time. He says, the Lord, and Paul read this earlier, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. Evidently, the scoffers will say, well, maybe God's just slow. Maybe God just can't get it all together. Maybe, maybe you've misinterpreted the promise. Maybe He's not capable of returning like He said. Maybe God's just indifferent to all this thing. And Peter says, don't you understand that the delay in God's timetable is an expression of great redemptive patience. He's patient. He's patient. He said he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Verse 10, but, we looked at this last week, this age of God's patience and waiting and time for men and women to come to repentance that age that time will come to an end verse 10 but the day of the Lord will come the day of the Lord will come it'll come like a thief when you least expect it and then the heavens the plural here heavens is this created universe, he's saying the, the created universe will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and its works that are on it will be exposed. Peter goes in these first ten verses really from confronting these deceivers and exposing their lie to now verse 11 through 13 to giving great assurance to the believers of the future. Verse 11. It's just incredible. Just a moment of honesty. I say, are you only honest one moment? Well, I hope I'm honest the whole time. There are times as a communicator and a pastor, there are scriptures that you come to, and there is this tension within you that I can't even begin to do justice to what God is saying in his word here. The hope he is holding out to believers if we ponder and meditate and pray these realities into our lives, there's no way the promise of the future doesn't change the way you live today. And that's Peter's burden throughout this letter. So he comes now to encourage and admonish and challenge the saints. He said, you don't, you don't live in fear of the coming judgment as a believer. That judgment has been poured out on Christ and the cross. You are living with expectation of a new heaven and a new earth. He says, verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that word dissolved, we looked at it last week, is the idea of to let loose. 
the, the, the power that now holds everything together at the very atomic level, somehow, someway. Colossians says that's the word of Christ holding all things together. There's a day coming that he says, whoop, let loose, it's go. All things are dissolved. He says, since that is a reality, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? You hear Peter's burden? If these things are so, and the return of Christ is sure, and the world will pass away, and judgment upon the wicked is coming, what sort of people ought we be today, he says? Verse 12. Waiting? Now just, if you do word study, that waiting is not an impatient tapping of the foot waiting. Well, I don't know if he's there. That waiting is the idea of an eager expectation. It is the early church greeting one another and saying, Come Lord Jesus, because it was ever in the front of their minds. Maybe today's the day. That He comes and makes all things new. Waiting for, verse 12, and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies are going to melt away. Peter says, verse 12, our temporary universe, the current world system, will dissolve and come to an end. Why? In preparation of what is to come. He says it's going to wipe everything clean, if you will. The wicked will be judged. Sin will be gone. The curse removed in anticipation of what is coming. Verse 13, but... According to His promise. We are waiting, eager anticipation, longing for the new heavens and a new earth. And this is an amazing phrase. We're going to spend time here in just a minute. In which righteousness dwells. Come Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord will come. Now what I want to do this morning in the time we have and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a faith family, I'm going to give you two big ideas that continue on out of the same big truth. They're going to come out of verses 11 through 13, just two. Let's spend a little bit of time there this morning. I think it's going to challenge and help us this morning. The day of the Lord will come. Next big idea that flows out of that is this. The promised return of Jesus calls us to holiness and godliness today. This promised return of Jesus, Peter, you can, as you read it, you can sense his burden here. The realities of what is to come, the Spirit of God uses in the lives of our people, of His people To call us to a life of holiness and godliness today. Now look back in verse 11. He says, since, in light of these things, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the world as we know it is going to fade away, what sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness? Now the first thing I want you to see about this is he says, what sort of people ought you be? 
Now, if you study this, you understand, you read it, and your first thing is, well, Peter's kind of asking a question here. What, uh, what sort of people do you think we ought to be in light of all this? Listen, Peter is not asking a question. This is not a question that he is expecting a specific answer. Here's what he's saying. It is an exclamation of a reality. In other words, he says, in light of our king's promised return, in light of the coming judgment on sin, evil, and the wicked, in light of this temporary disposable world passing away, in light of the reality that all things will be made new, in light of the reality that we will reign with him one day in a sinless perfect world in our glorious resurrected bodies on a new heaven and new earth, in light of all these realities, in light of these future excellencies, how astounding and excellent our life ought to be today. It's an exclamation. See that? Peter says if you could get your mind around these promises of God, it wouldn't just be, it wouldn't just be a theological proposition that you hold. Well, sure, I believe in the second coming. I believe in the coming of the Lord. All good Christians do. No, no. It wouldn't just be something you hold. Watch this. It would be a reality that holds you. And it would shape your life and shape your decisions and shape your priorities and shape our perspectives. He says, in light of these realities, what sort of people ought we to be? And he says specifically in the area of holiness and godliness. In the context here, the idea of holiness specifically deals with our action or our conduct. That we are separated from sin in our lives. And our lives are characterized by this decreasing patterns of sin in our lives. And we're progressively becoming more and more like Jesus. This life of holiness being set apart. Look, that the world looks at us and there is a categoric difference about what we pursue, what we choose, what we go after, our lives and the world around us. There's a holiness to our lives. He says in godliness, godliness is the idea, it's really here referring to an attitude. It's a perspective toward God, it is a worldview toward Him, it's, a, it's the way we see all of the world. It's this godly perspective, God's perspective. Holiness and godliness. Now, you're not going to catch this in the English. If you do a little word study, you realize both of these words, holiness, godliness, in the original language, they're plural. You say, that is astounding. I, I just can't believe you. Okay, what does that mean? That means it's untranslatable in English. Watch. If you translated these two words exactly into English from the Greek, here's the way you would read it. What sort of people ought you be in holinesses? <laughs> And godlinesses. And you go, I don't even know what that means. That's confusing. You got your grammar wrong. What's happening? No, here's what he's saying. Peter is saying he is taking the concept of holiness and godliness and he is spreading it over all of life. In other words, godliness is not a category of our lives. Holiness is not to be a category of our lives. Well, yeah, this area of my life. Yeah, no, no, no. He's saying all of life. All of life is permeated by this holiness, this separateness from the world, this growing toward Christ-likeness, this pursuit, this hunger, this godliness that I'm seeing things from God's perspective, God's word, God's priorities. There's a holiness and a godliness to our lives. Peter knows that confidence about the future transforms the way we live in the present. 
So he said, I want you to know for certain your future. And then in light of that, oh man, what sort of people ought we be? What should characterize our lives? How different the world should be able to look and see something entirely different because we know for certain how the game ends. (laughs) We know. The promised return of Jesus calls us to holiness and godliness today. Now, we've been spending some time with Peter over the last year. We were in 1 Peter at the beginning of the year, 2 Peter now. So we, we got to know the Apostle Peter pretty well. If you remember 1 Peter... It's interesting that this same idea, this same burden of Peter that, listen, if you know the biblical realities and you you know the promises of the future, they will transform your life now. He he held on to that same idea at the beginning of 1 Peter. So this idea that Peter is chasing, he begins his letters with them. He now ends 2 Peter with this same idea. You don't have to turn there. 1 Peter 1, 13 and 15, you'll remember this. We were here several months ago. Here's what Peter says. Therefore, gird your minds for action or prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Fix your hope on what's coming, the certain future. Then he goes on, verse 14. Okay, how does that impact our life today? Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Peter says at the beginning of his letters, he now says at the end of of his letters, these these biblical realities, this rock-solid biblical truth of the future return of Jesus and all that's involved in that, if you grasp that, It will transform the way your lives are conducted today. There will be these decreasing patterns of sin. There will be a strength and a power by the Spirit of God holding on to truth to fight sin today. And not perfection, we know that. But this pursuit of hungering, Lord, I don't want that in my life. It will be a laying off of the things of this world and a putting on of the character of Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. So Peter begins his first letter that way. That's his burden. And then he ends his second letter that we just looked at in the same way. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we be in lives of holiness and godliness? Certain assurance of the future transforms the way we live our lives today. So let's just get really practical. Does... The promised reality that the day of the Lord will come impact your life today. Does it? Peter says if you get it, you wrap your minds around it, what sort of people ought we to be? He says we're headed for glory. What sort of people ought we be? I was spending some time with this this week and getting ready and I couldn't stop thinking about when I was uh, maybe college, maybe a little bit older, I can't remember. There was a there was a real focus on the return of Christ. It was when all the movies were coming out and the books were being written and there was there was just kind of a 
the, the temperature was raised a little bit among evangelicals in the church of talking about the return of Christ. And when I was thinking about that, I remember, at least my memory of it was that the focus was more on the events and the timelines and the charts and what world leader might or might not be the Antichrist. I can't remember that. I can't tell you, <laughs> I can't tell you the number of books that have been handed to me in the last, oh, I don't know, five years. And somebody says, I think you just need to take a look at this. And then you read the first page and it's something along the idea of a political bent on the return of Christ. And do you think this certain world leader is the Antichrist? So what's the point? I think somehow we have taken the return of Christ and we've moved it into some kind of predictive timeline, date setting, whatever realm, when the burden of the Apostle Peter is the reality of the return of Christ is it transforms your life today. What sort of people ought we be in light since all these things are going to dissolve and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and King Jesus will return in glory and take us and we will reign with him. And all that's involved in that, what sort of people ought we be? The promised return of Jesus calls us to holiness and godliness today. Now, here's what I do. A few minutes remaining, I want to get even more practical. Okay, Pastor Mike, then what does that practically look like? Peter's helped us here. He said in, in holiness and godliness, uh, categorizing our lives. So what I want to do is I, I just want to give you some more Bible here. And I've got, I don't know, I've got probably more than we have time for. But I've got several verses in the New Testament that take this idea. And they say, okay, if we hold on, if we grasp, if we live out of the reality of the return of Christ... Here's how our lives will be shaped and different today. So listen to these verses. I'm going to give you a quick application out of each one. Some of these will be on the screen. Some of them might not. 2 Peter 3.12. We, we, we just read it, but he says, Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. There's an eager expectation to our lives. There is a categorization that our greatest hope and our greatest expectation is in the certain reality of Christ. That's one practical application. Let me give you another one. 2 Peter 3.14. We'll spend more time on this next week. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Same thing we've been talking about. There's this pursuit of godliness and the laying aside of the things that are not honoring to God. This pursuit of Christ's likeness. And he says, and peace. This wholeness ought to categorize our lives. As the world is fearful about what might happen, what might take place here, there is a steadiness and a peace to our lives. Peace should categorize the life of the believers. We look to the coming of Jesus. Let me give you a few more. Matthew 24, 42. Jesus said, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Jesus said, if you look to this, hold to this, it grips you, there will be an alertness. There will be a sober-mindedness about your life. There will be a well-ordered mind. Jesus, Luke 10, verse 20 says this, nevertheless... 
Context of Luke 10, really quick, is his disciples were sent out two by two. They come back, they're reporting all that they saw, all that they heard. The demons are subject to us, on and on. They come back, and they were telling Jesus, and Jesus said, man, that's great. But he says, verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But you rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Meaning, there is an unshakable joy characterizing the life of the believer now as we look toward and hold on to the future promise that he's given us. Unshakable joy. See that? 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The older I get, the more I love that verse. My my outer self is wasting away. He says, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. There's an endurance about your life to press on in difficulty and challenge. Why? Verse 17. For this momentary light affliction... That's how Paul sees the world. Ups and downs of this world, momentary light affliction. Why, Paul? Is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 18. As we look, not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are transient, temporal, fading away. The things that are unseen are eternal says there's an endurance about our life. There's a wisdom about our life. Why? Because with this perspective, you can understand the difference between what's temporal and fading away and what's eternal and what really matters. There's a wisdom about our lives, Paul says here, that will characterize our lives. Let me just give you some real practical application about this. Knowing what's going to fade away and knowing what's eternal will affect your decisions. Let me give you some examples. One, eat healthy... Stay fit, but know that body is going to fade away. (laughs) Sorry. Let me give you another one. Enjoy the things you have. Enjoy the gifts God has given you. But know, every material thing we stress over, covet from others, end up going in debt, we argue and fuss about, every one of those material things are going to end up in a landfill someday and be dissolved one day. That ought to affect your decisions. There's a wisdom. Steward the earth's resources. We've been entrusted to be good stewards of the earth. But no human effort will be able to ultimately save this disposable planet. Be good stewards. We live on a disposable planet. Understand the difference between what's eternal and what's temporal. There's a wisdom about our lives characterized because we hold on to the rock-solid reality of the future. A few more. Paul said, 2 Timothy chapter 4, said, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. He says, in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me when? On that day. And not only to me. But to all who have loved his appearing. 
He says for those who are giving their life to faithful ministry, that's not just pastors, that's disciple makers, that's you press on in faithful ministry and know there is a reward coming from the Lord himself that he will give on that day to all who have loved his appearing. Come Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. We have a capacity to suffer well. We have a capacity to suffer well unlike the world around us. Why? Because Paul says there's not even a comparison of what we might suffer now in light of future glory that is ours. Able to suffer well. Paul says, Philippians 3.20, last one, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. We get a new body by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. Paul says, listen, my ultimate citizenship, my ultimate identity is one of heaven, and, they, and He is my ultimate King. It's a matter of our identity. My primary allegiance is to the king and his kingdom and his future return. So maybe you can write those down, maybe you can pray through those, maybe you can use those to strengthen our lives as we hold on to this promise practically. The promised return of Jesus calls us to holiness and godliness today. Now, final couple thoughts. Look, look back at verse 11 and 12, and then we're going to get to 13, give you a final big idea quickly. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be in lives of holiness and godliness? Then he says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now I'm going to resist spending a lot of time talking about this, but somehow, someway, Peter says, our lives of godliness, somehow the promise of a new creation spurs us on to godly living, and somehow our godly living spurs on the coming of the new creation. I don't know how that works. He says, the reality spurs us on to a certain kind of life. And then he says, as this is happening, there is a hastening. There is an acceleration of the coming day of the Lord. You can talk about that. There's a ton to talk about there. That seems to be what Peter is saying. Then he goes on, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Temporary universe, current world system will dissolve and come to an end. In preparation of what is to come. Listen, beloved. Don't let your life be characterized as a believer by merely saying, well, I'm just waiting for the end of the world. <laughs> You're not waiting for the end of anything. You're waiting for the new creation, the new heavens, and the new earth. But all must pass away in preparation of what is to come. And that's what Peter says, verse 13, and we'll finish. The day of the Lord will come. The promised return of Jesus calls us to holiness and godliness today. Final big idea is this. When Jesus returns, he promises to make all things new. When Jesus returns, he promises to make all things new according to his promise he says verse 13 
we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says there's a waiting. There's an eager expectation. He says promise. If you mark in your Bible, write that and circle that. He doesn't say the promises of God. Singular, one promise. Why? Why does he say it that way? Because there's one promise that's pulled throughout the beginning of redemptive history all the way through Scripture to the end that he's referring to. This singular promise of the day that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the new creation. There was the creation, there was the fall, there was the age of redemption, and we know the next day is this age of the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. He speaks of it in Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will all pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Same promise. Isaiah 65, 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Same promise. That there is something coming that's new, not just in order, but in complete new quality. There will be a new existence of which we have never known before, as it was originally intended to be pre-fall in the garden. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I want to finish in Peter's description here, and I want to spend a few minutes on this last little phrase, and we're going to wrap it up and be done. He says, it's new. It's new quality. It's something you can't even imagine. He said, it's this ongoing promise given to us throughout redemptive history of a new heaven and a new earth. And then he gives four little words in the English, and he says, in which righteousness dwells. So this is one of those points that I know I don't have the time or even the communicative ability to explain all that God is saying here. He says, one of the characteristics of this new earth and these new heavens, which again are not two separate units, it's this one unit of reality that we'll dwell in, is that righteousness dwells there. The word dwell means to settle down or to be at home. Righteousness is no longer an alien there. Rightness and the right order that God has designed is no longer odd. It is the norm. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, he is saying that a new world is a world in which righteousness is no longer a stranger. A world in which righteousness is no longer a wanderer. A world in which righteousness is no longer a foreigner. A world in which the home of righteousness is the permanent, perfect existence. We can't imagine a world where righteousness dwells. Everything is in right order as the Creator intended it with one another and with Him. It is a world characterized by righteousness. 
Revelation 21.1. You can write these down quickly. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. What does it look like for righteousness to dwell? God dwells perfectly with man. There is not a separation because of sin of God off in heaven and we're here on earth. It is a perfect existence of God and man together. Perfect righteousness, new heaven, new earth. Righteousness dwell. He says he will dwell with them, Revelation 21.3. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. Understand, this is not so much at the end of the days, we go off to heaven. It's almost the sense that the realities of God in heaven come and dwell perfectly on this new earth, just as he intended it to be. Incredible. Revelation 21.4, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We do not understand or can even get our minds around the reality of a world without pain, death, mourning, crying, or the curse. It's coming. Where righteousness will dwell. Revelation 22, verse 3, And there will no longer be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. And then he says, verse 4, this is perhaps the thing. I was just reading this this week, kind of doing some cross-references. I just had to stop here. I hope the Scripture, he says, what does it mean that righteousness will dwell there? Revelation 22, 4, and they, us, will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Meaning, you and I have never known communion with God apart from the taint of sin and still in our fallenness. But there is a day coming in the new creation and the new earth that we will see Him face to face. There will be no limitation in our resurrected capacity to worship God except that we're created and He's the Creator. But sin will not hinder us anymore. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Moses said, Lord, let me see your glory in Exodus. And he said, you can't see my full glory. You can see my backside, so to speak, but you cannot see my full glory. But in heaven, in the new creation, in the new earth, in our glorified bodies, John says, you, I, the people of God, will see him face to face. Come, Lord Jesus. As the team comes on up and just begins to play, we're going to move into a time of response and even prepare for the Lord's table. And I don't want you to check out because we're not completely finished. The promised return of Jesus calls us to a life of holiness and godliness. When He returns, He promises to make all things new team comes and just begins to play. I, I want to ask you just a couple final questions and, and we'll be finished. Are you personally longing with great anticipation for the return of the King? And if so, is it shaping the way you live your life today? Come, Lord Jesus. Second question is this. Are there glimpses... Are there glimpses of the new creation in our world today? Well, yeah. I don't know if you're an early bird or if you got up early this morning. It wasn't even that early, but 
I was literally downstairs this morning, and I heard Jennifer upstairs, and I ran up, and our bedroom window kind of looks to the east. And, man, I don't know if you saw the sunrise this morning, but the entire sky was just filled with the hot red color. It was just gorgeous. And I, I literally, all this was on my mind, and I thought, man, as beautiful as that is, it is breathtaking. It is only a glimpse of what the new creation will be one day. Now watch. But there are greater glimpses of what the new creation will be one day. You know that? Say, what are they? Final verse and I'm done. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In other words, brothers and sisters, Because of the transforming power of Jesus through the gospel, through faith and repentance and trust in Him, and our transformed lives, Christ in us, the hope of glory, the world is to look at our changing lives, our lives of holiness and godliness, our pursuit of Christ, our character becoming more like Jesus, and it is to be a glimpse of what is coming one day when King Jesus returns and makes all things Father, we love you. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for these promises and this promise of today that the day of the Lord will come. Transform us in light of these truths for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.